0: morning Christ Church. Good morning. Today is Pentecost and um, one of the favorite traditions is we get to hear the, the whole let the flame burn brighter song during the children's dismissal. Remembering there's more than just that one chorus we sing each week. So thank you worship team for that. That was wonderful. Anglicans are marked by three streams. We're marked by the sacramental stream. Believing that God's Jesus' real presence is in the table Every week, we're marked by scripture, the scriptural stream uh, that scripture has everything necessary for life and salvation. We teach, we preach, we order our lives around it. Then we're marked by the spirit stream. We believe in the power, the ministry of the Holy Spirit, active, alive in the world, coming, filling each of us, refilling each of us, sending us out into the world. We wear red today. Because it symbolizes those tongues of fire. I see some of you have red on in the room right now. Um, Remembering the tongues of fire that come down, animating the church, God breathing life into the church that day. In fact, think about the days you see um, where you see the table dressed in red or you see ministers wearing red. Um, You see it on Pentecost. You see it in ordinations. You see it in confirmations. You see it on martyrs' day. Anytime we're remembering a fresh outpouring of the Holy Spirit, we're remembering the the tongues of fire that were breathed out on the day of Pentecost. What is Pentecost? Fifty days after the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, during the feast of Pentecost, God is breathing his spirit out onto the church. And what happened was the formation of a new community, new creation, the people of God centered around the risen Jesus They are filled with his power, healed by his touch, sent out into the world as agents of healing and reconciliation to all the worlds, proclaiming the good news of the risen Lord, demonstrating lives of holiness, following in the works of Jesus, and embodying in their own being what it means to live as Jesus would live every single day. I love how the message captures this moment in uh, Pentecost in Acts 2 says, like a wildfire, the Holy Spirit spread through their ranks, and today the fire still spreads. Our lectionary doesn't have us begin with Acts 2, though our first reading came out of Genesis 11. So if you have a Bible, turn there to Genesis 11, and um, we'll start there. And it's important to get the, the context. What is, what is going on in Pentecost? What is Pentecost, in fact, undoing that comes out of uh, Genesis 11? So we're going to start there. Genesis 11 with the Tower of Babel, and you've heard the story of the Tower of Babel before, familiar with it, all the way from your um, Kids Quest days. You know about the Tower of Babel. But let's put it in context of Genesis 3 through 11, because what we see in the beginning of Genesis is this increasing growth in sin uh, in humanity. So you see this. You see Genesis 3, Adam and Eve... Uh, disobey God, eat the fruit of the tree, and they are exiled from the garden. They are sent away from God's presence, the fall. What happens next in Genesis chapter 4 are two murders. and We often think of the first one with Cain, out of jealousy and envy, murdering his brother Abel. But then at the end of the chapter, there's a figure named Lamech. A descendant of Cain. And um, he even goes on boasting that if Cain killed one, I've killed 70. And it makes a song, making sport of his murders and how he's gotten away with it. You see this descent, this continuing descent of humanity. Genesis 6 through 8, the flood, God's judgment uh, on the world and sin, and also his grace to save and recreate humanity through this one family, Noah and his family. They're saved through the waters. They come out of the ark, and you remember one of the first things Noah does is he plants a vineyard and then becomes drunk. And it's not just that he's drunk. Something happens. If you go back and read Genesis 9, something happens in the tent between him and one of his sons. It's not totally clear, but there's something particular happening in that moment. We see a continued descent until we get to Genesis 11 with Babel. Look how the story begins in verse 2. As they moved out of the east... They came upon a plain in the land of Shinar. Now, east here, it's a reference to moving further away from the garden, moving further out of God's presence. You've maybe heard of the book by John Steinbeck, East of Eden. It's the further east they go in Genesis 3 through 11. It's the further humanity is moving from God's presence. It's this recognition they are moving away from Eden and away from God. In fact, think of Genesis 12 when God calls Abram. Do you remember the direction Abram goes at that point? He, he travels west. He begins going back, this return to God's presence. And they come to the plains of Shinar. These are the ancient plains which give rise to the city and civilization of Babylon. You remember a couple of weeks ago, we were in Revelation 19. We were talking about Babylon, this symbol of the great prostitute on earth. Well, this is the origin story of that culture and that civilization, the Tower of Babel. Verse 4 says this, all the humans are together. They say, come, let's build ourselves a city and a tower that reaches heaven. Let's make ourselves famous so that we won't be scattered here and there across the earth. And in God's response to this in verse 9, he's to come down and judge it. He says, therefore, this, the name of this place was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. You notice two things are happening in this story of Babel. First of all, the humans are constructing something with technology. There's this new technological innovation, the brick, you know, this new modern invention that they have, a brick, but they're using it. They're using it to make a tower, and um, there's something about humans. When you gather together, there's, there's culture making. That's actually a good thing. Like culture making in and of itself, it goes back to Genesis 1, part of the cultural mandate that humans as part of the royal priesthood, the image bearers of God, we are called to go into the world and to cultivate it, to take the raw materials of the world and to bring cultivation and culture to the land, to represent God and to be a blessing to the world. And yet as part of the fall, they don't do that. They take their technology and rather than trying to bless, honor God, bless the world... They're making a name for themselves, trying to honor themselves, erecting a skyscraper and putting their name on the front of it, saying, look at me, notice me, pay attention to me, this human innovation of called to be a blessing to the world and yet turning in on themselves. God comes down, this is the second thing that we notice. God comes down and he judges the humans by scattering them. And as they scatter, they're dispersed into a multitude of languages, unintelligible to one another. And though this is the judgment of God, this is really just the culmination of the first 11 chapters of Genesis. That the humans have already become unintelligible to one another. They already are talking past one another. They already are becoming self-absorbed, self-focused, and not able to, to fully communicate with one another. Under the curse of the fall, all humanity is no longer comprehensible to itself. We begin to live in violence. We begin to live in war. We still see the same things, of course, today being played out in our world, that apart from God, humanity lives in fear and through manipulative self-preservation. All right, y'all know I am, um, some of you know this at least, that I'm a a Tolkien nerd, Um, and some of you are as well, and so I'm in good company here. Anglicans tend to be high on the Tolkien nerd scale. Whatever that scale is, we're high on that one. And um, in seminary, I in fact, I even got one of my philosophy professors to teach a class on the theology of Tolkien, um, reading and studying this book together. So I've got some good background for what I'm about to tell you, but um, if you read Tolkien's *Lord of the Rings*, you know there's these different species all um, all over Middle Earth. You've got these elves and these dwarfs and. Ents, these tree-like beings, these little hobbits. You've got all these different creatures all over the earth. And whenever one of the creatures, like one of the elves, travels from one side of Middle Earth to the other side, they can always communicate. They speak the same language, even if they look different. Some have light hair, some have dark hair, they have different physical features, but they all share this language. The elves have their elf language, the ents have their ents language, they all have their particular language for their species. Except there's one species that can't speak to itself. Do you know which species it is? It's the orcs, the orcs, those monsters under the rule of Sauron, the Satan figure. If you read the appendices, which I've done, (laughs) if you read the appendices, Tolkien points out that from even one clan of an orc to the neighboring clan, their speech would be mostly incomprehensible to one another. Isn't he saying something theologically profound? About what humanity might be right now, under the rule of a dark master, incomprehensible, unable to speak to one another. Theologically, the Tower of Babel exposes what happens when humans get together to make culture. When, cult- when culture making happens, whether it's politics, the arts, business, family life, institutions, nonprofits, there will always be a temptation humans feel to exalt ourselves. To preserve ourselves. You remember that they said we don't want to be scattered. We want to preserve ourselves. There's a temptation to preserve ourselves, to amass and consolidate power, to not lose power even at the expense of others. This temptation of Babel. Let me give you a contemporary example where you see this happening. Think of the church. When I say the church, this worldwide, multi-denominational, universal church, it is holy filled with God's Holy Spirit, but it's also led by sinful men and women who feel this temptation towards Babel. You remember what Luther said, that humans are simultaneously justified and sinners, leading the church. The temptation to build a tower of Babel exists in the church as well, and so recently, there's been an increased awareness of church failure here in America, especially in the area of abuse. Emotional abuse, abuse of power, sexual abuse. Some of you have heard of the absolutely horrendous report that's come out recently from the Southern Baptist Convention. This study on ministers who abused power, abused congregants, and then this cover-up that happened associated with it. And if we were to say that's the only time it happened, we'd be fooling ourselves. Because over the past twenty years, you see a pattern in different churches, different denominations, different ministries, different camp settings that continues to repeat itself: abuse of power and a cover-up. There's two aspects when abuse happens, and there's first the abuse itself, which, to be clear, God absolutely abhors, absolutely despises. It's especially heinous when the abuser is clergy or spiritual leader or church staff who's called to care and protect and sacrificially lay down their life for the flock. It's completely antithetical to the gospel of Jesus who lays his life down to rescue us. But then there's also the response. The response when something happens is to expose the sin Protect, honor the victims, remove the perpetrator for transparency. Or tragically, what we've witnessed from churches and ministries is cover-ups to protect the ministry or the leader. So you'll see statements like this. Well, he's the face of the ministry. Or Satan is bringing this up to distract us from the gospel of evangelism. As if the gospel has nothing to do with the realities of abuse and violence and bringing justice and mercy Into those places. This cover up the silencing of the victims, stonewalling, the protection of the powerful, is damaging just like the acts of abuse themselves, prevents healing, perpetuates sin, and itself is abhorrent to God. This is the story of the Tower of Babel all over again. It's not just out there in the world. This is humanity. This is what it means to live in this world. It's a temptation of the church to build a ministry centered on our own human reputation and our own effort, and to preserve that at all costs, no matter what the cost. And as an aside, I'm grateful for our Bishop Todd Hunter putting in place wonderful and robust training policies for volunteers, all volunteers, staff, and clergy, that is survivor-centered and trauma-informed. And policies and trainings aren't everything, of course, but they're important. And I'd encourage you, if you have not yet taken the time to read our diocese policies regarding children and youth and their protection policy, go online and spend some time with them. So important how the church understands and demonstrates the love of Jesus to the vulnerable. Switch back now to the biblical story, Genesis 11, what we've been talking about. What does God do at the Tower of Babel? What does he do? He comes down and he judges it. He scatters the people. He says, you've been erecting something to yourselves, and I judge that. I condemn that. The tower's not here anymore. The work has crumbled. It is no more. And we're left biblically with a unique problem in Genesis 11. Genesis 11, humans are now scattered all over the world. We're moving further and further east from Eden. We're moving further and further away from the presence of God. And there's a question hanging is how will humans get back into God's presence? How will God and humanity come together again? How will there be a reconciliation between these two parties? Is it forever going to be this way? And I say this so often. That God is not the God who stays distant, hiding behind the clouds, and just watching humanity live in this world. He is always... The God who enters into the world, enters into pain and suffering to bring redemption and healing. He's not the God that does this, creates the world and then shakes it up like a snow globe and steps back to just watch the pieces disperse wherever they may be. He comes into the world, entering the world. And track how his presence comes through the Old Testament. Where you see his presence, his presence is in the garden and we're exiled from the garden Then he rescues this people, the Israelites, out of Egypt, and he moves in to camp with them. They build this tabernacle. His presence comes down onto the tabernacle. The tabernacle is situated at the outside of the camp. So the presence of God moves so close to be with his people that he's on the outskirts of their camp. As they take possession of the promised land and they come to Jerusalem and they build the temple in the center of the city, his presence comes into the center of the city. It's like he's moving from the outside even closer, moving among his people. Until one day the presence of the temple walks out among the people. John 1.14, the word became flesh and he made his dwelling among us. The presence from Eden, the presence of the tabernacle, the presence of God in the temple now walking among us. Which moves us to today, Pentecost. What is happening today today? Jesus had told his disciples to wait in Jerusalem until they received power from on high. Suddenly the winds are whipping around, flames spreading like wildfire, the presence of God moving closer into his people still, that all who have faith in the risen Jesus suddenly find themselves in the presence of God Almighty." Through faith in Jesus Christ, the presence that created the universe itself comes to reside in each and every one of us. We become many temples, many walking presences of God. And when we gather together, his presence is here among us. The same presence that was in the temple resides among the people of God. What is happening in Pentecost? Two things. It is the undoing of Babel. And it is the beginning of the return to Eden. First of all, the undoing of Babel. Look in Acts 2, verse 5, what's going on here. There were many Jews staying in Jerusalem and then devout pilgrims from all over the world. And when they heard that sound, isn't it amazing? There's this whipping around of a sound that draws their attention together. They come on the run. They heard one another, one after the other, their own mother tongues being spoken. They were thunderstruck. Pentecost, it's the reversal of Babel. It is the... The long-awaited presence of God to draw in the nations. And where Babel was human pride that resulted in scattering, Pentecost is God's gift that results in gathering. And notice that people gathered. Parthians, Medes, Elamites, those from the east. Egypt, those from Africa. Pontius in Asia, that's the area of Turkey. Immigrants from Rome. These are people from all over the world. It's a potpourri of the ancient world being drawn together. The people of God. In Babel, one people We're dispersed, speaking many languages. In Pentecost, many people are gathered hearing one language. You know, one of the reasons that the U.S. church continues to press for racial reconciliation and continues to call us to come to terms with our own racially divided history, it's found here in Acts 2, the birth of the church. Listen to what John Perkins, a senior leader, writes about this. He says, for the message of the gospel to truly have power... The people of God must deliver the news as one united body. This good news was to be delivered to the world by a multicultural, united body of believers, the church. For too long, many in the church have argued that unity in the body of Christ across ethnic and class lines is some separate issue from the gospel. Scripture doesn't bear that out. We only need to examine what happened when the church was birthed to see exactly how God intends for this issue of reconciliation within the body of Christ to fall out. In other words, he's saying, look to Pentecost. Look to this day. The church is the multicultural, every nation, every language, new creation, body of Christ here on earth. Y'all have heard me say before that I regret I can only speak English. And I have tried Duolingo and meeting with people and everything else. But I love it when Wes and the team, they lead us in worship in Spanish in one of the songs, you know? Because I can't speak on my own, but I can read and I can sing both poorly, right? I can, I can do that, but it reminds me that I belong to the universal church, the church spanning all nations, stretching through all history where my voice and my culture are part of the symphony of voices praising Lord Jesus. Pentecost is the undoing of Babel. Secondly, Pentecost is the beginning of the return to Eden. The tongues of fire create a new community, but the Spirit, the tongues, they also come to rest on each and every individual, each and every disciple. The Spirit of God coming to dwell in each and every single person. You know, sometimes you'll hear this uh, statement, and it's well intended that God can't, God's so holy, he can't be near sin. Have y'all maybe ever heard that before? Okay, you don't have to raise a hand. Yes, you can nod ahead. You've heard that before. God's so holy, he can't be near sin. Then how does the Holy Spirit ever come to a sinner? Then how does God move into our hearts if he can't be near sin? Because I am a sinner, and he comes to be in the presence of each and every one of us. On Pentecost, God comes near sin. He comes into the hearts, reanimating, recreating humans individually, one at a time. You know, I've shared before, um, there's a scale of introvert-extrovert and um, I'll put introvert over here, extrovert over here. And I'm somewhere more on this side. I've shared this before. My wife is over like here. And we, she jokes, um, she's able to talk to a brick wall. You know, like she's just able to keep on talking, doesn't wear her out. When we go to like social settings, there's the center of life and activity. And that's where she is. And then there's the corner. And there's usually one or two people in the corner. And that's where I am, right? <laughs> Who are, are the introverts in here? Couple of, I'm surprised introverts raise their hands. It seems like something... <laughs> does it seem like something we'd be willing to do. I find it so amazing where God's called me in life to be. Okay, whether introvert or extrovert, put your mind here for a moment. Do you, think, think back to one of the first days of school. Maybe the first day of, of a middle school, first day of high school, first day of college, first day of a new classroom setting. You remember that day? You're walking into the classroom, and all eyes are fixed on you. You're going to lunch. You've got your tray. You're looking for your seat. You know, you're, you're trying to find who are the one or two people that I can, I can just sit. Who's my tribe? Who are my people right here in this moment? Whether you are introvert or extrovert, you're looking for an eye of recognition. You're looking to belong, be part of the group. Part one of the most deep human desires we have to belong. It's how God's made us. We have a fear of being left out. Here in Pentecost, God brings you in to the only group that ultimately matters, the fellowship, the Trinity. He brings you in to life with him. He welcomes you in. You are never again excluded. You are permanently scooped up and included in the family of God, the presence of God. I love how C.S. Lewis captures what we feel here in the weight of glory. He says, in the end, that face, the face of God, which is the delight or the terror of the universe, must be turned upon each of us, either with one expression or with the other, either conferring glory inexpressible or inflicting shame that can never be cured or disguised. To please God, to be a real ingredient in divine happiness, to be loved by God, not pitied, but delighted in, As an artist delights in his work or a father delights in his son, it seems impossible. A weight, a burden of glory which our thoughts can hardly sustain, but so it is. Pentecost reverses Babel, and it's the beginning of Eden restored. He loves you. He desires you. The gap between humanity and divinity closed in the spirit. God coming to dwell with you, promising you will one day fully dwell with him. Here's what I want to do now is um, every year, I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon that uh, we had the tradition of singing the full Let the Flame Burn Brighter song. We also have a tradition we try to do each year uh, with this triptych up here, this altar piece, and um, in the E! News on Friday, I explained this a little bit more, but this piece was commissioned by our Faith and Arts team, actually by Terry Fisher who was the leader of the team when it was commissioned, and it's a Pentecost piece. The outer panels describe this journey through the valleys and the mountains of life, the spiritual journey of walking in this world. And you see these golden boxes coming down in the left panel being opened on the right panel, these gifts of the Holy Spirit for the church on this journey, calling other people into fellowship. And then the center panel its made up of steel, of wood, and of wax, three earthly materials representing here the trinity. And one of the things we're going to do right here, um, we'll do this in a few moments after announcements during the offertory, have these magnetic flames of fire. It's reminding ourselves, we too are included in life with God. So um, in a couple minutes, what I'll invite each of us to do, everyone who wants to, uh, during the offertory, is you'll come forward, file through these, this middle aisle right here, pick one of these up. As you do, go forward and you'll put it Up here, again reminded, you are brought in, insider with God. And as you're doing that, I would encourage you to be thinking and praying, where in your life do you need to be filled afresh with the Spirit? Where do you need a fresh outpouring of His work? I've got some slides up here that maybe just some categories to think through, but um, in your love of of God, you just need a fresh, like, God, I just need, my heart needs to be turned back to you. Love of neighbor, like the people that are surrounding you in life, family, friends, extended network. Lord, I need your, your spirit to come and bring reconciliation there. Mission. Your vocation, responding to the caller, being sent out into the world. Lord, I need your power. I need a fresh work. We can go to the next slide. Healing. Where would you invite the spirit to bring healing to your life? Where do you feel weary, overwhelmed, broken, incapable of? Continuing in life? Where do you feel out of sorts even in your body, asking for healing? And then, character. Is there an invitation that the Lord has to to put on Christ likeness, to put on the the full fruit of the Spirit in some sort of way that He invites you to? When When you come forward, those are just some buckets, some categories you might think through. When you come forward in a moment, be praying, saying, Holy Spirit, fill me afresh, perhaps in one of these areas, perhaps in some other area as well. Today is Pentecost, the undoing of Babel, the return, the beginning of the return to Eden. In This Pentecost, may you drink deeply of his spirit, his love poured out for you. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.